Well, this passage in Isaiah chapter 9 is very famous. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and his name shall be called Mighty God. It'd be good if you turn to that passage. It's on page 753, and just stay there. I'm going to be referring back to it a number of times this morning. But what I'd like to do this morning is to use this text to illustrate a a very old and meaningful saying, which I'll put on the screen. And uh, this sentence expresses something about the relationship between what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it goes like this. The new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. And the fact is, for Christians, the Old Testament by itself is incomplete. It's an unfinished story. And uh, the New Testament is not completely understandable by itself without the beginning of the story. Now, uh, we believe that both parts, what is called the Hebrew Bible and the Greek Testament, technically, that those two parts are not two different stories, one for the Jews and one for Christians, as many people believe, but they form together one story, and we believe that that one story is the unfolding purposes of God down through history, and because of that, we acknowledge that there are many things early on in the story which do not have immediate and direct relevance to us today because they were written to different people at a different time under a different arrangement of relationship with God, but we believe that it was all written for us, for our benefit, for our understanding of the purposes of God. The whole story is inspired. Every part is important to us. Now, what we're looking at is we're looking at a chapter, Isaiah chapter 9, which was written down, or at least the prophecy was given, around 730 B.C. at a very specific time in the history of Israel, and it contains a prediction about the coming of an anointed king who will be descended of David and will reign forever. And that one is called, in the Old Testament, in a few places, the Messiah. And uh, when the Messiah appears, this passage says, particularly verses 1 through 7, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, it says that when he appears, he'll rule over the nations. There'll be no more war. All of the implements of war will be destroyed because they're no longer needed. There will be universal joy and gladness at that point. And the reason for those conditions is found in the sixth verse that is kind of the focal point of the whole passage. For, because, this is why all of these conditions will be true child is born to us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, picturing like a robe put on a ruler, and the robe fastened at the shoulders is a, a symbol of his right to rule over all the territories over which he rules. The government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called, and then four titles are given. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We're looking at these four titles over four different services, and this morning we're on the the second one, uh, Mighty God. In some ways, this is the most important. Everyone uh, tends to see that the first three titles of the four could refer to God, but the second one of of those first three most definitely seems to refer to God, and it, it makes it a very mysterious, enigmatic, and excuse me, enigmatic uh, passage. Why is the Messiah here given a title that is used half a dozen times in the Old Testament and elsewhere in every other case refers exclusively as a title of God? 
Well, I uh, went to school and I, I took a class. I'm sure you took this class too. It was called Rabbinic Interpretation of the Old Testament. <laughs> I think there were three of us students in the class. And uh, uh, it was an introduction to how the rabbis, that is Jewish scholars through the centuries, interpret or understand the Old Testament. <clears throat> and I first uh, quickly understood that that is an incredibly vast topic. I mean, just to get a, 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 an overview of how the Bible is understood uh, within Judaism, it takes uh, you know it's a whole class in itself. And one of the problems you quickly realize with understanding what the Jewish people have thought about the Old Testament is that we have almost no information that comes from before the birth of Christ. And there's a very specific reason for that. The reason, first of all, is that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, that is, a few years after the death and resurrection of Christ. And when the temple was destroyed, all written records of the Jewish people were lost. That is, copies of the law that were there, genealogies of all of the people were destroyed, as well as countless other manuscripts that we have no idea what was there. And they hadn't really written down much of the interpretation of the Old Testament. It was all passed by oral tradition. And it was in 200 AD when the Jewish people first wrote down um, kind of the body of basic understanding of the Old Testament. It's called the Mishnah. It's in six volumes. And it, it, in the Mishnah contains all kinds of discussions of rabbis that go back before Jesus, but it wasn't written down until after Jesus' time. And one of the things that that means is that the Jews didn't really begin writing down their understanding of the Old Testament until after they were right in the midst of the Christian mission to the Jews that began with the death of Christ. The Christian mission to the Jews was extremely fruitful for about 200 years until Judaism found its own place and Christianity had won the majority of adherents that they would have out of the Jewish people and, and things settled down to pretty much the way they are today. And before, at that point, some of what you read in the Mishnah are Jewish interpretations in light of what Christians were saying. So you have to keep that in mind when you read it, and it makes it very difficult to understand exactly how the Jews understood that. That becomes important in this passage. It would be wonderful to know how a Jewish interpreter in, say, 500 B.C. would have read these words, his name shall be called Mighty God, how they would have explained that, how they would have understood that. But we don't really know. Now, the professor I took a class from had a, a degree from Oxford, uh, or not Oxford, Cambridge University in England, and uh, I remember him referring to another passage in the Old Testament I'm going to show to you that's very similar. It's found in Jeremiah chapter 23, and it says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Now, in English, they add the word is. Often in Hebrew, the to be verb is left out of a sentence. And so often you have to add it in. But it's not actually written there. It simply says, the Lord, our righteousness, Adonai Tzidkenu. And my professor described, he told us a story about being in the library, Cambridge University, one of the oldest libraries in the world, containing over a million documents 
uh, of, of incomparable value, handwritten documents from generations ago. And he, he was reading one. There was a medieval Jewish manuscript. And uh, in the margin of this manuscript, a medieval rabbi had written these words. He wrote the words, why is the Messiah called by the name of God? He was asking a question. Well, the question is a natural question when you read Jeremiah 23. You note in, in Jeremiah 23, it has two times it refers to the Lord, and it's in capital letters. When the word Lord is in capital letters in your Bible, it is uh, a stand-in word that has been used for centuries uh, to refer to the name of God. The name of God in the Hebrew Bible is four consonants, Y-H-W-H. We do not know how to pronounce them because the Jewish people never added the vowel points later to explain it. And I was taught every time I came across that word to read the Hebrew word Lord, Adonai, instead of trying to pronounce the divine name. It uses it twice, and it says that the righteous branch, a reference to the Messiah, Jews and Christians believe, David's descendant, the righteous branch, he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Why is he called by the name of God? Now, we don't have a similar kind of statement written by anyone in Isaiah chapter 9, but whoever read Isaiah before the coming of Christ, they must have pondered and thought about this and reflected on it. And they must have been asking, at least in their minds, the question, not why is the Messiah called by the name of God, because he's not given the name of God here, but why is the Messiah given a title that elsewhere in the Bible refers exclusively to God? Why? How can that be? Well, interpreters of, through the centuries uh, looked at these words and offered two suggestions to try to get around what seems to be the plain fact that the Messiah is here given a title of God. One is common today among what you might call non-conservative or uh, liberal interpreters of the Bible. Liberal interpreters tend to believe that an 8th century B.C. prophet could never have called a human being God in any sense of the word, and uh, so they, there must be some other explanation of the passage, and this is how they explain it. The words that are used, there's simply two words in the Hebrew Bible, and the words are El Gibor, and it's usually translated mighty God. Just for your information, the word Gibor means warrior, usually, when it's used by itself. The word El is just the generic Hebrew and Aramaic word for God, just like God is a generic term, doesn't refer to a specific God in our language. It's the same way. And um, what they say is, maybe interpreters have gotten this backwards. Instead of Gibor being used as an adjective, the word warrior is somehow modifying or explaining the noun God, in which case it would mean mighty God. Instead of that, Perhaps the word ale is being used as an adjective. And so it would mean godlike, godlike warrior. That's how they would translate it. It means godlike warrior. Well, there's two problems with that. Um, the first is that uh, the title is used several times throughout the Old Testament, as I mentioned. I think it's used six times in this form. And it, in every other place, all five other places, is unquestionably referring to God, and it's always translated mighty God. It makes sense. So this would be a, a singular example of somehow it being different. But secondly, there's no example in the Old Testament of the word God being used as an adjective to describe something about someone else, God-like. That's just a dog that doesn't hunt. 
The third problem, I suppose, is that I heard a man over here just now say, Marge, I thought you said we were going to church. And I didn't think I was going to a Hebrew grammar lesson. <laughs> well, I have a degree in Hebrew, and I've been here for 35 years, and no one's ever asked me a question about Hebrew grammar. And every once in a while, when I get a captive audience, I just have to kind of let you know about it. So that's your Hebrew grammar lesson for the day. The Jewish people have a different way of understanding this passage. At least it has arisen in modern times. And here's what they do with it. They take the passage and they read it this way. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And now what they do is they rearrange the clauses. They skip the next words and put them later, the words being his name shall be called. They say the government will be upon his shoulder and... The wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, which they say are all, those are all titles of God, he calls his name Prince of Peace. In other words, what they say is that God is calling the Messiah by the name Prince of Peace. That is the only title in the sentence they say that refers to uh, the Messiah. The other ones are all referring to God. Now, there, there is a problem with that, and it's not the rearrangement of the clauses. It, it happens that this is a sentence where in your English Bible, it's following the word order in the Hebrew Bible almost exactly, but that's pretty rare. Hebrew and English are very different in word order, and they do a lot of surprising things with it, so that wouldn't be a problem. The problem is it requires changing the actual words. The words of the clause say, and his name shall be called. It doesn't say he will call his name. And uh, so uh, it's not really possible to interpret it that way. The words, however, as they're written, they're, they're an enigma in the Hebrew Bible. When you read the Hebrew Bible, you do not find a lot of places where someone is called God and uh, a human being is called God. And, and I'd have to say, if all we had was the Old Testament, if that's the only revelation God had ever given to human beings... This would just be an enigma. How could this child be called by a title that unquestionably refers everywhere else to God? But just remember, the new is in the old, concealed. The old is in the new, revealed. Christians accept the New Testament as the completion and the fulfillment of the Old Testament story. And what that means is that things that are concealed in the Old Testament, we view as being, in some cases, like diamonds and precious jewels that are below the ground, and only a point is sticking up, and you see it and wonder, what are the riches that are down there? The New Testament brings those riches out, makes them clear, so that everyone can understand and what they're about. And this is one of those right here. In this case, the New Testament makes clear that the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the uh, king in David's line who will reign forever, the Messiah, is actually the second person of the Holy Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The second person, the Son, existed for all eternity past. And before creation, the host of heaven worshipped him around his throne. What the New Testament says is that that person, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, stepped out of eternity and assumed, and that's an important nature that's always been used among Christians, he assumed a human nature. That is, he took it on like you put on a suit of clothes so that his human nature covered and concealed the fact that he also was God. And that's why we call him 
Not a title used in the Bible, but Christians have used this to describe what is written in the Bible, the God-man. He is presented in the New Testament as being fully God and fully man at one and the same time. In the New Testament, Jesus is presented as being fully God. He is called God half a dozen times in the New Testament. In addition, there's a number of passages where they quote an Old Testament passage, they quote the Hebrew Bible, putting it into Greek in the New Testament, and in the Old Testament text, it uses the very name of God, and they put it in Greek as the word Lord. For example, Romans chapter 10, whoever calls or will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, quoting from Joel. Well, in Joel, he uses the name of God, and it's used in the New Testament in reference to Jesus. It's obvious that the writer understood he was quoting something that used the name of God and referring to Jesus in the New Testament. That happens a number of times. Jesus in the New Testament does things that only God can do, like forgive sins. He's worshipped as God. And you put all of these things together, and it's, it's hard to not come to the conclusion that Jesus, as he's presented in the New Testament, is God. But also in the New Testament, he's presented as being a full and true human being. He has all the characteristics of humanity, hunger and thirst. He's tired. He's born. He lives. He dies. He, he, he lacks only one characteristic of humanity, and that is that he didn't sin and was incapable of sin. But you might think, well, then how can he be human? Because our experience of humanity is that universally all human beings sin. But you need to understand, sin is not basic. It's not essential to true humanity in Adam, before the fall, we didn't sin. And the redeemed in heaven, even now, not only do not sin, but are incapable of sin at that point, having been cleansed by the redemption of Christ. And because of that, we understand sin is not basic to humanity. It's not necessary, even though we experience it now. And that he is a full human being is why it says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, there is one God and one mediator between God and and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now, how does that reveal this whole principle that uh, what is concealed in the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament? Well, look at chapter 9 of Isaiah again and just note what he says. Verse 6, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And that tells us that this person to be born who is to reign forever, who is the Messiah, he is a human being. He is born as a human being. And then in verse 6, we're also told that he's called by the title God. His name should be called Mighty God. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 6, or 9, verse 6, makes no explanation for how those two things can be put together. How can the Messiah be both God and man? Uh, there's no reflection on his godhood and his manhood, how they fit together, whether he has two natures or one, those are all things that are explained in the New Testament, but they're all hidden below the surface of the simple revelation that this one is born as a human child, is a human being, but is given the title of God. The new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. Now, let's be clear how important this is. This whole Christian teaching clear in the New Testament that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. He's the God-man. That, that teaching is the sticking point of the Christian faith. That really is the point that many people in the world can't swallow. For example, 
Muslims can understand and they believe in the virgin birth. It's written in the Quran that Jesus was born of a virgin. They accept that, but they just can't accept that he is both God and man. Jews, on the other hand, they believe in resurrection because it's taught in the Hebrew scriptures that there's going to be a resurrection of the living and the dead in the future at some point. They don't believe it applies to Christ, but they believe in principle and resurrection. What they don't believe is that Jesus is God in the flesh. So you see, if we could give up this one aspect of New Testament teaching, that Jesus is both God and man, it would make everything so much easier. People would be so much happier with us. All the opposition would melt away. We could be one big happy human family again. But the problem with that is if you give this one up, you're giving up the chief truth of the Christian faith that is so important to hold. What melts away if you do away with this basic fact that the Messiah is both God and man is you're left with just another great teacher who taught us good things about how to reach God. You're left with just another humanly devised religion. No wonder it would be acceptable. It could be fit in with all of the other great people in history, Moses, Muhammad, the Buddha, who taught ways to reach God. But what I want to tell you is that there are three reasons why this distinctive teaching is so important for us to hold on to, to proclaim, to appreciate and value ourselves. This teaching is rooted in a few enigmatic passages in the Old Testament, like this one, but it's something that bears rich fruit in the New Testament when the fulfillment comes and it makes clear how all of these mysterious things could have been said in the Old Testament. Three facts are developed from it. Here's the first one. Because Jesus Christ is God and man, he is able to save. Because he's God and man, he's able to save. This is a basic fact that was worked out by early Christians, particularly a man named Athanasius in North Africa in about 300 AD. Athanasius wrote a very famous book historically entitled On the Incarnation of the Word of God. It's an explanation of how or why God took on human flesh. That's the meaning of the word incarnation, to become enfleshed. Why God took on human flesh. He pointed out the logic of the Bible regarding how sin could be atoned for, and it went like this. Jesus Christ had to be a true human being so that he could be the substitute. After all, sin against a holy God has to be paid for. Humans in their flesh have rebelled against God. And the, the bare fact is either we could pay for our rebellion ourselves, in which case we would face eternal damnation and separation from God, or another could be found who would pay the penalty in our place. That's called substitution. No animal could replace a human being. Not effectively. could be a true substitute. No monetary payment could be sufficient for rebellion against God's divine majesty. A substitute must be a true human being in body and soul. That's first side. The second side is that he had to be also true God so that the offering that he made, the atonement that he offered in the place of sinners, could pay for an infinite number of human beings and not just for one. After all, one human being having one body, one soul, could himself offer himself in the place of one other human being if he were sinless. 
but only the God-man could offer to pay a penalty that was eternal in nature, having himself an eternal nature. He could pay for the sins, not of one human being, but of many human beings. Now, you see, when I was growing up, I didn't understand that. I, I thought that, um, because I had a little acquaintance with the Christian faith, I thought that it went like this. God gave me free will so that I would obey him as I go through life. And I tried to do that. I tried to be a good person, but I made many mistakes. I did many things wrong, and I figured as time went on, I learned some things about Jesus. That must have been the reason for Jesus. Jesus came to forgive all of my mistakes, to forgive all of those things that I did that were wrong. If I was sorry enough for what I did, Jesus would pay for those things, and then my obedience would take me the rest of the way. If I put together forgiveness of sins because of my sorrow, because I was genuinely sorry I'd done that, together with my continued obedience that I was trying to give to God, maybe in the end God would accept me. But what I failed to reckon with is a very central verse in the New Testament, one of the most clear and demanding statements of Jesus that's found in John chapter 14 and verse 6. Jesus said, I, speaking of himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, he didn't say no one comes to the Father except through me and his own obedience. He didn't say no one comes to the Father except through me and the fact that she's really sorry for the things that she's done wrong. He said no one comes to the Father except through me, only me, exclusively me, no one else, no other condition. You see, because Jesus is both God and man, he's able to save. As man, he can become a substitute for human beings. As God, the substitution that he made could pay for the sins of many, not just for one. And uh, therefore, he can save us. That's why it says in the New Testament, therefore, he, Jesus, is able also to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Save to the uttermost means to save forever and to save completely. Like there's nothing we could add to it. We either come to God through Christ and him exclusively, or we come to God bringing our own paltry efforts that we're going to add to what he did for us and find that that is not enough. Now, there's a second thing. It's not only that he is able to save, but because Jesus is God and man, he is able to judge. That's the distinctive teaching of the New Testament. Because Jesus is both God and man, he is able to judge. Now let's consider a couple of verses in the New Testament that say that. The first one is found in um, John chapter 5. Jesus is speaking here. He says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to also have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now Son of Man is the common title in the Old Testament referring to the Messiah, and it's Jesus' favorite self-designation in the Gospels. It's the word when he wants to refer to himself as the Messiah. It's the phrase that he uses more than any other phrase. And the idea in these words is that the Father has granted that the Messiah, this divine human person, would have self-existence, something the Son had for all eternity, but it is also given to the Son of Man, Self-existence is something that is true only of God. It's what sets God apart from everything he has made, which is everything else that exists outside of him. 
Self-existence means he needs nothing outside of himself to exist. He never becomes hungry or tired. He exists solely within and for and because of himself without any outside need. You and I are dependent on many things, including the next breath in order for us to live. But that is not what the Son of Man is like. And on this basis, Jesus says, he is able to judge. Again, another passage later in the New Testament, Paul's teaching here found in the book of Acts. Apostle Paul is preaching at this point the gospel, and here's what he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The Messiah, as the God-man, is able to judge. You might ask, well, why is that significant? that he is able to judge. Well, it's important because in every human heart, there's something that cries out for justice. We often don't recognize it, but we don't like it when we think that we live in a world in which people have gotten away with heinous things. I mean, think of the dictators who ruled Russia, Stalin, and communist China, Mao Zedong, and people like that who died as old men in their beds, full of days, after being the cause of the death of millions of people, literally millions of people in both of those countries. There's something inside of us that says that's wrong. And perhaps this week you read a story. Tell me if you did. The the story of a man, I read two or three uh, uh, editions of this, a man who found his father's skeleton in the basement. Did anyone read that? You don't read the National Enquirer? (laughs) It was right there when I was buying stuff in the grocery store. No, it was on my news app. And uh, it's not the National Enquirer. Uh, This story is just unbelievable. This man, he's an older man now. He's always suspected, along with his two siblings, that their father was buried in the basement. The story is in 1961, when he was a little boy, all of a sudden his father, a Korean War vet, left and was never seen again. The kids asked their mother, where's dad? Oh, he's gone. Don't worry about it. And every time they brought it up, she'd say, it doesn't matter. She married the neighbor man shortly after that. And um, they lived together for a long time, got divorced. She died. And last year, the stepfather died. The children always suspected the stepfather was somehow involved in their father's disappearance. I never have understood why he did this, but he got people He owns the home that he grew up in. His mother left it to him. To dig around in the basement, they found this skeleton. And this last week, it was determined from DNA that it was his father. Now, that's just kind of a weird story, you know? And to us, just one example, it's like, oh, yeah, that's that's terrible. That's really weird. But what an injustice. I, I can't imagine there's any way they will find out what really happened. It seems that all the key people are dead in this case, and there's no way to go back and figure out exactly what occurred. But when you think about that and think about it worldwide and all the different ways that it's happened in large and small ways, there's something inside of us that says life wasn't supposed to be this way. People are supposed to pay for the things that they do, at least the big things. God will judge the world in righteousness by a man that he has appointed. Without justice, especially without justice for those distinct, ugly violations of God's moral law. There's something in the human heart that says, 
this isn't right. Someone's got to pay. Something has to be done. And why is it that universally among the human race in all places of the world, every human being has a concept of justice? I mean, they may differ in some of the details, but everyone says there are certain things for which people must pay. If evolution is the sole answer to how we got here, we're just a mass of chemicals that came away, how could there be a universal sense of something that is so beyond what the animals have? Well, it's because, from the Christian perspective, the eternal God has imprinted on human beings his moral law, and one of them is the basic idea that you shall not murder. That is imprinted on the human heart in such a way that the idea of justice is a universal experience of human beings. And, and that's why the Son of Man, we are told, is going to be a judge. Now, why is that important, that God has appointed him to judge? It means that you and I live under the gaze of the eye of God. It means that we cannot escape that. His eye scrutinizes every aspect of life, every motive. Every aspiration, every action, every thought. And the Bible's teaching is that those who will not fly to him as Savior will face him as judge. God commands all people everywhere to repent. It's a basic teaching of the Bible. Because Jesus is both God and man, he has been appointed to judge. He is able to judge. And the last one is this, because Jesus Christ is both God and man, he is able to rule. It's distinctive teaching of the Bible. It's the point Isaiah made so clearly. He comes to rule on the throne of David, verse 7, and over his kingdom forever. Um, why is it that it must be a God-man who rules? I mean, doesn't God rule over everything? Isn't that sufficient? Why is this story so keyed in on a human being in the end, God-man, being the one who rules over all things. Well, that takes us back to the beginning of the story. That is rooted in the, the very purpose of human life, why we exist here today that's revealed in the Bible. It says that when God created the first two humans, he said, uh, let them have dominion over the earth. And then once he created them, he said those words to them, have dominion. God's purpose in creating human beings is that the human race would be the kings and queens of the earth. We would go out and we would spread throughout the earth and make the whole earth an Eden. That was his intention. That we would do it as we created families and culture and this spread. And that before sin, this would have been done without the problems that have happened since then. It would have been done under God's leadership and God's authority so that we would have been the vice regents on the earth, glorifying and honoring God in everything that we did, not raping the resources of the earth or misusing and murdering each other, that the resources of the earth would be used for the glory and the honor of the living God. But all of that changed with the advent of sin. With the advent of sin, all of it became twisted, but the command, the original creation command, have dominion, has never been rescinded by God. So throughout biblical history, and you read it, you would find that there as the promise and purposes of God move forward, certain people would arise and they would be presented in the text almost as though they were the first man again. Now we have the opportunity for human beings and this person and his descendants to rule. You've got Abraham and Moses and David, and they're all presented that way. But in each case, they fail. 
they fail because even though God is faithful on his side of the covenant of creation, it is the human actors who throughout the story continue to fail. They simply will not obey. And that's why there's a promise made very clear here in Isaiah that a man would be born who would be given the title of God and fulfilled in the New Testament in the God-man, Jesus Christ. He is both son of God and son of man. He is both God and Messiah. He's perfectly faithful in every way to God so that he is able to rule. He is able to rule. And all who are in him, we are told, will rule with him. That means he's been appointed by God to rule over this world. And that means he's been appointed by God to rule over us, to guide us through the wilderness of this world. That's his function. He's there to teach us his way, to give us his spirit, to enable us to follow him and to obey him. That's why it's so significant that the child to be born, the son to be given who would rule for all eternity, is called Mighty God. He is able to save, he's able to judge, and he's able to rule. Praise be to God. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would make it clear to us, but more than that, we pray that you would drive home into our hearts the truth that this one whom we come and we sing about is not just a misty cloud. He is an actual living Savior, a person, not a human like we are in our personality, but a person, not just a thing with intellect, emotions, and will that is in every way perfect. We thank you for that. We ask that you would give to us hearts that long to live under the sway of his gracious rule that we would exude that in the way that we live and the way that we think with other people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.